0: Let's turn our attention to Psalm 25, and we continue our study of God's Word through the book of Psalms. And before I read the psalm to us, I'd like to address, I think, a problem that many of you may face as we turn to God's Word today. And that problem is called knowing the will of God. It's a utterly popular way of talking about what decisions should I make in life, especially as a Christian, So if you're here today and you're a Christian, over the last 40, 50 years, there's been recent emphasis on this topic of conversation. How do I know God's will for my life? Should I start dating this person and marry them? It's a big question, maybe some of you are thinking about. Should I continue to work at this occupation and stay in this company or should I move elsewhere? Should I continue to live in the state of Illinois or in the current place? where your residence is, these are big questions that we wonder, if I choose one way, will that be God's way? What if I choose the other way? Will that somehow ruin everything for my life, as if I am turning my life into plan B instead of God's original plan for me? And so that's, that's the broader kind of conversation that I'm wanting you to start thinking about. Psalm 25 has been often called a psalm for those who need guidance. How to receive guidance from God. And it would be, I think, very easy for us to then dive right into practical teaching and lessons for you and I to figure out how to know God's will for our life. The sermon title, as you can see in the handout, is A Song About God's Ways. And in many ways, we want to live in accordance with God's ways, His will to be a faithful Christian, but there is a bigger problem. It is not the problem of knowing God's will. It is when one is too focused on trying to figure out what the will of God is that they forget God himself. In other words, we want to know the will of God, but sometimes we just want the answer of what to do next rather than knowing the God whom we are seeking to follow. The Bible does talk a lot about guidance and that God personally wants to guide us in our lives, but the emphasis is God-centered. It comes from a different angle. It puts much more emphasis on you getting to know God and that if you would trust him, you would be the kind of person that everything you do will lead you and guide you in the decisions you make. How many decisions will you make every day, and you can't go to a Bible verse that says, you should take that job opportunity, 2 Corinthians chapter 22. That chapter doesn't exist in the Bible, nor does that specific guidance. And that's my point. But what if you knew more about what God was like, what his ways were like, what the world was like, so that you knew that you could just make a decision? And then that decision would hopefully be a reflection of where you're at in that journey with God. So as Elizabeth Elliot said in her book, A Slow and Certain Light, she remembers being in the Amazon jungle. She was a missionary with her husband, Jim, and she said that there was a group from America that came. They were explorers, and they asked her, she had been there for some time, if they could get a map because they were lost. And so she said to her, in the jungle you do not want a map. You need a guide. And they turned down her advice and said, no, no, we really just want you to draw us a map. She said she never saw them again. And she wonders to this day, did they ever make it? Or did they get lost forever in the jungle? I think she's right. And that's our point. That's what Psalm 25 says is really all about. What we need is not a map spelling out what you should do today, eat for lunch, do tomorrow, keep that job, get the other job, move across the street, move across town. You could fill in the blank, right? A lot of decisions to be made. The question should not be, what is God's specific will for me, but do you know the guide? Do you know the guide? Specifically of the New Testament language, of the gift of the Spirit who guides us and teaches us to know God. Let's read Psalm 25 in light of that and see the repetition of God wanting to instruct us of His ways. This is a psalm of David, and it begins with verse 1 To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exalt over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness. For those who keep his covenant and his testimonies, for your namesake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses, consider my affliction and my trouble, and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes, and with what violent hatred they hate me. O guard my soul, and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God. Out of all his troubles. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. So, this is a 22-verse psalm. Any of you know how many other uh, things in the world of the Hebrew scriptures or the world of reading the Bible have 22? 22. Oh, that's how many letters there are in the Hebrew alphabet. Interestingly, if you read this in Hebrew, it starts with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph. And then the next verse is Beit, which is the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and it just keeps going and going. And then, strangely, it skips one letter and then repeats another one. But in general, it's an acrostic psalm. It's what you could say an ABC kind of psalm. And it gives you, I think, a complete picture from A to Z of the goodness of God's ways. So the big idea here, I think, for each of us is instead of pursuing knowing the specific will of God, so instead of wanting to know God's will for fill in the blank, get to know God. Get to know his ways. And through that, live with him as your guide, knowing how he works, who he is. And I think that will make a big, big difference for many of us in our day-to-day decision-making in the will of the Lord. So, in light of the structure of the psalm, an ABC psalm, I have 13 points for you, each starting with the alphabet, but I've grouped them, so I really have three points. But I literally do have 13 points. We're going to go from A to M, and your job is to have the rest of this week to figure out N to Z. I mean this. I told you at the beginning of this teaching series that many weeks, I want to come and I want to help you read Psalms, and then I want you to read these Psalms throughout the week as a way to teach you how to pray and worship on your own. So I'm going to give you the first half of the English alphabet on the basis of my meditation of Psalm 25, and I've grouped these things into three parts, as I said. So I got basically three points. The first grouping is just two letters. God's ways are available God's ways are believable. God's ways are available. You can know what God is like and what his ways are like, and you can believe them. They are available. They are believable. You can be taught the way that God works in the world and learn them. Do you see that very clearly in our passage? Verse 4, make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Drop down to verse 12. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. And then my favorite, verse 14. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. The friendship of the Lord. Do any of you have in your Bibles a little footnote next to friendship? You might. Look very carefully. A little letter B is in my Bible. And it says that this phrase that's translated friendship is actually the secret counsel of the Lord. Here's poetically what the Bible's trying to tell you in this verse, verse 14. Friendship is a term of intimacy. It's a term that's translating the concept that even the secrets of God are not far off or unknown. You know it all. All that you need to know, you have. God is not withholding or keeping his ways, his counsel, and his truth from you. This is glorious. God's ways are available. They are believable. You can believe them and access them. They are not too far off. And in light of this, we are told that we can know the ways of God and then trust him. And he reveals himself to us. I think this leads to a very clear application. If God makes himself known and we can know them and it be taught, well, then we need to study God's word to know his ways. I mean, I think this is pretty basic, but how many times are you going and running through the Bible looking for a verse, oh, that'll answer my question, no, 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 no. Wrong approach to the Bible. The Bible is a giant narrative, a massive story that goes through 66 books telling you about who God is, what he's like, and his ways. Therefore, saturate yourself in the narrative of the story of God and notice the twists and turns of that story so that when those twists seem familiar to your situation, you're like, I know what he does next. I know how this works out. And specifically, notice the way our psalm says that the people who know God's ways wait for him. How many times do you think your inability to wait leads to you making a wreck of your life and living out of the will of God? Sinning, failing, disobeying. Notice verse 15, my eyes are ever toward the Lord for he will pluck my feet out of the net. I know that God is a deliverer. When I'm stuck and I'm in a trap. He doesn't let me go. I know that he will come and rescue me, so I'm waiting for him and my eyes are toward him. Verse 5. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation; for you I wait all the day long. Notice the way waiting is the result of knowing that God is a God who saves. Do you know that God consistently and repeatedly delivers on his promises? Well, then you can wait for him to deliver. On his promises to you verse 21 may integrity and uprightness preserve me for I wait for you are you patient enough to wait upon God's providence to work itself out or do you want it now all of it now I don't want to wait Our eyes should ever be toward the Lord. Day after day, we should look to God. Day after day, pour forth over the scriptures and the stories of who God is and what he is like. And then, through that, wait for his timing, putting our trust and our hope in him. Some of us want sexual gratification now, so we don't wait. Some of us don't want to wait around for a godly spouse, so we date people that we know are not christians or just not good people to spend time with we don't want to wait for the eternal blessings that if we store up treasures in heaven that seems a little too far off how about some treasures now we don't want to wait for god's timing and bringing reconciliation with a friend so we choose bitterness instead of reconciliation we choose not to have the hard conversations we avoid it altogether. Maybe we join another church because there was an incident. I don't want to deal with that. I want to wait on the slow process of walking through the steps of Matthew chapter 18 and going and approaching this brother and sister and saying, this sin has hurt me and I would like to reconcile. Let's just move on. Let's speed up the process and find another church. Collectively, we as a church could not... Could, could could make the same mistakes and not wait on the timing of God and too hastily nominate and vote on a leader in the church. How many leaders in the church should not be put in leadership because they're not ready for it and you should wait till maturity and unity in the church affirms a decision. I pray that Lord willing that will be what we do next Sunday. Not hastily nominate an elder and then quickly vote on him the next day or week, but give you months, give you time. And if the church votes no, then we wait. We wait for unity. We do not wait when somebody is sinning and their sin is making our lives more miserable. We don't want to wait for the Spirit of God to change them. We would like to be the Spirit of God for them. So we yell at them. We correct them. We nag them. We demand. Our way is right instead of God's way. Do you see how waiting is central to trust? And that if you know God's ways, you realize his timing day in and day out is good. So I want you to realize that you can be taught God's ways. It's available to you. You can believe them and trust them and therefore take a posture of waiting upon his timing Friends, even this act of knowing God's ways will take time. Some of you might be here today and you're not a Christian, and I want you to know that the answer is not one message. It is a lifetime of studying God's word to better know his ways so that you then can live out of the assurance of what he's like and what he does. That's our first point. God's ways are available. They're believable. They're accessible for us. Second point, I got five letters for you, okay? God's ways are certain. God's ways are durable. God's ways are eternal. God's ways are faithful. God's ways are generational. They pass down from generation to generation. Certain, durable, eternal, faithful, generational. You can bank on God's ways. You can learn them and you can really trust them. I think that's one of the major themes of the psalm. Look at the way it begins. Verse 1. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul, which I think could be the first verse here in contrast to what we heard last week in Psalm 24. They lift up their souls to idols. And this verse says, David is lifting up his soul to you, O Lord, the God that he trusts. Verse 2. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Trusting in God and waiting is seen again because of the certainty of being able to rely on his endurable, unchanging, faithful character. You will not be disappointed. God's ways are so good that when they come to fruition, You'll look back and say, yeah, that was the better way. That was way better than what I had in mind. It will not result in shame or embarrassment. That's explicit in verse 2, isn't it? How many times are you thinking, if I make this choice, what's going to be the consequence? I don't want that. He's saying right from the get-go, I am putting my trust in the Lord because I know the outcome of putting my trust in the Lord is that he will prove himself faithful. I won't be disappointed. It will, in fact, be God's enemies who go the opposite of God's way. They will be ashamed, it says in verse 3. Look at verse 6. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. That's a, a wordy translation of one Hebrew word that's saying God's ways are eternal. Eternal. That's why I mentioned that they are certain, they are durable, they are from old, they are eternal, they are faithful through the generations. As far back as you can go from even the very beginning of time, as soon as time was recorded and people have observed what God does in the world time and time again, he proves himself faithful. From Abraham to Isaac. From Isaac to Jacob. From Jacob down to Moses and then Joshua. You just keep reading through the stories of the Bible, and each one, even in their sin, and in their failures, and in their disobedience, and even their attempts to try and mess up God's plans. God proves himself faithful. Do you know this? Do you know verse 13? That his soul shall abide in goodness. That's what the word is, tov in Hebrew. It just means good. Your your soul will abide in Take up lodging is the verb here. You will stop and dwell in well-being, and then, not just for you, but for your offspring, they too will inherit the goodness of God's ways. Brothers and sisters, those who fear the Lord and walk in accordance with his truth will dwell in good results, and so will their children and their children's children. Do you just care about right now so much that you forget the idea of passing on a legacy of trusting in God for generations to come? I was trying to say this the other day. This is not necessarily the only thing to say, but one of the reasons we've talked about possibly moving toward a permanent location as a church is because I want this church embassy to be preaching the gospel for generation after generation, and having a building could help with that. It's not essential. But just give that some thought. If we plant our flag in the northwest suburbs with permanent brick and mortar and say God's word will be preached from this place. Generation after generation, my children and our grandchildren and our great-great-grandchildren until Jesus returns in the northwest suburbs, let's pray that God will maintain faithful ministry by being good to his promises, specifically to us at embassy. I want this to be not just Phil's church. I want this to be a lighthouse of the gospel for ages. This is what God's word says he does. This is the way he works. So friends, let's get in tune with the rhythm of the ways of God. Let's sing in harmony with him. It will prove true for you and your offspring. Third, final point. Lots of more letters. We're only up to G, right? God's ways are available. They are believable. They are certain. They are durable. They are eternal. They are faithful. They pass on from generation to generation. Third, finally, making one big idea, but with lots of words. God's ways are higher than our ways they are infinite, they are just and righteous, they are kind and love, filled with love. In fact, the text, as we'll see, it says God's ways are love, and they are merciful. You can finish the rest of the alphabet, but here we're seeing that God's ways are amazing. They're so good. Isn't God good? Look at verse 18. Consider my affliction and my trouble, and forgive all my sins, Consider how many are my foes, and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. Here's one way to summarize what I think that last little portion I just read to you is saying about the goodness of God's ways. You can clearly see that David is, in verse 18, in affliction and in trouble, in part because of his own sin, Some people wonder if this is a psalm that was written after he committed adultery and murdered the woman's husband, Uriah. We don't know. But look verse 19. Whether it's David's sin that's getting him into trouble, he clearly has enemies. I mean, commit adultery and murder someone, you might have enemies then too, right? Consider how many are my foes, and with what violent hatred they hate me. This man's got a lot going on. And some of you do too. And you look back in your life and you see that somebody messed you up. Let's just think about that. You have enemies. You have adversaries, people that have done things to you, said things to you, and they messed you up. And you're in a host of affliction and trouble right now because of what something that you couldn't control happened to you. A father, a mother, A brother, an ex-spouse, a business partner made a decision, said that phrase that haunts you every day and makes you think less of yourself. People do things that are terrible and mean and awful and they mess up our lives. And this psalm is telling us that David had those people in his life too. In other words, I think he's saying to us that even in spite of these kind of people in our lives, I'm trusting that God's promises are greater and more powerful than any of the evil that is against me. Do you know God's ways that way? Are you confident, trusting, waiting on God to take whatever evil is currently in your life, past, present, or in the weeks to come in the future, And knowing that he takes every evil thing that happened for you, that was meant for evil. And he has a way of making that work for good, even if you can't understand it. The sins of others do not mess up the will of God for your life. I think a lot of us struggle to believe that. Oh, my life would be so different if I had a different set of parents. was born in a different country took that other job, went to a different college. How much revisionist history are you playing in your own heart and life and think, I think I've just totally gone off the wrong path. Am I even in the will of God altogether? And I'm declaring to you from Psalm 25 that David is saying, even in spite of all of the evil around me, you cannot mess up God's will for your life. I have heard the devastating, sad story of people, even in our own congregation, Who were born from sinful circumstances, maybe out of wedlock, maybe given up for adoption in a way where their parents wanted nothing to do with their child, and they think, my whole existence feels like a mistake. Some people have even been told that. You're a mistake. Let me declare boldly Brothers and sisters, each and every one of you, image bearers of God, Christian or non-Christian, you are not a mistake. We can know this with confidence because we know what God is like. We know his ways. We know that he takes sinful, evil choices that others make, and even if you had nothing to do with it, he takes all of that, and his ways remain good. How is it not too difficult for us to now just think, like, a specific story in the Bible? of some close family members sinning against a young boy or young man and it working out very poorly for him. How about Joseph? His brother sinned against him greatly. His life got really messed up. I mean, have you been sold into slavery before? He suffered greatly because of the decision of the evil that was done against him. But ultimately, God used all of the 13 years of this up-down, crazy, chaotic story. Read the end of the book of Genesis, and you'll learn more about God's ways. And you'll see that at the very end of that story, he went from being down in the depths of a pit to the right hand of the king of Egypt, Joseph. What a story of all these things that you did to me, and in fact, the way that the story ends specifically is that Joseph looks at the very brothers who put him into slavery in the first place and started him down this terrible spiral that you would think, no way, is God at work here? But sure enough, not only does Joseph get promoted to the right hand, he saves his family, saves his brothers, looks at those brothers at the end of the story and says, what you meant for evil, God meant for your good." that'll make you drop your Bible and say, oh, this God is good. You can't make this stuff up. This is a theme that the Bible says at the very beginning in the first book and continues throughout the rest of the Bible. Let's jump forward to Christmas. What's the story of Christmas on this second week of Advent? Jesus came into the world through sinful choices by other people. Others sinned, and Jesus Christ, we know definitively, was not a mistake. Do you think about all the different ways that the lineage of Jesus in Matthew chapter one is filled with a bunch of sinners? And time and time again, through the sinful actions, God somehow sovereignly works it so that Jesus Christ comes out of that. Think about the the issues between Jacob and Esau. And the way that Jacob steals the birthright of his older brother, this is not to be one of those stories where you take the moral lesson. Oh, stealing's okay. That's not the point of the story. The consequences of Jacob's choice repeatedly show that that's not the way God works. That's not his will for you. It's one of the Ten Commandments. Don't steal from one another. And it it is a wreck that follows in his path, a wake of terrible consequences because of that decision. And you read the book of Genesis, and similarly, you realize that through the end of it all, he finds the love of his life, Rachel. And through that line, you get Jesus Christ. The 12 tribes, Judah, and the tribe of Judah. And on and on we could go. Think of the story of Ruth, et cetera, et cetera. Read your Bible again and again, and saturate yourself in learning more about who God is and the way he works So if the sins of others can't mess up God's will in your life, what about your sins? What about the things that you specifically did, like Jacob? Well, look at verse 6. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your namesake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. David makes it clear that your sins and failures do not permanently disqualify you from the will of God. Individually, corporately, we can turn to God and he will be gracious to us, as verse 16 says. Even if you feel lonely and afflicted and the troubles of your heart are big, they are enlarged, God will bring us out of distress. And notice the way it says, distresses big problems and many problems. Do you got big problems or do you got many problems? What if you got both? He delivers on big problems and on many problems. So we should learn from this that sins and mistakes do bring very devastating consequences into our life and they are not a license for us to clearly disobey God. That is not living in the ways of God's word. They will often be painful. But they will never disqualify you from the ultimate plan of God's will. And this is exactly what we learned from Jacob and what we learned from Joseph. God's plan A is still in motion. You are not plan B. Do you believe this? Did Jesus Christ come out of plan B? Or. Do we see time and time again that God in his sovereign providence before the world was even formed and made determined to send his son all of today's message reminds me of a beautiful passage in Isaiah and I want to just close with that thought for you maybe you've heard it before it's Isaiah 55 verses 8 and 9 my thoughts are not your thoughts Neither are my ways your ways. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. And then he says this, For as high as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now, by itself, it's true. It's beautiful. It's worthy of memorization and meditation. God's ways, his thoughts, infinitely higher supremely better. So far as the heavens are from the earth, so are my ways better than your ways, your wisdom, your plans. Has that proven true in your life? Friend, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, my hope is that one of the things this message will do is help you look back through your life and say, yeah, sometimes I think I got it figured out, but it doesn't work out real well. That's God teaching you that you're not living according to his will and his way. You've sinned against him. But here's the good news of Psalm 25 and Isaiah 55. The reason he says my ways are higher than your ways is not to just say, I'm God, and I am just so much wiser and better. I mean, that's true. He is. He is the infinite creator God, and you are a lowly, finite human with just a small brain. He's seen everything that's ever happened. He made it all. He sustains your very heart as it beats right now. Humble yourself before this God and realize how amazing it is that he would reveal himself to you and tell you about his goodness. But don't end there. Realize that God wants you to know that his ways are so different from yours specifically and how you and I deal with sin. This is what the passage says right before in Isaiah 55. He says, my ways are higher than your ways. My ways are so infinitely greater. Notice verse 6, seek the Lord when he can be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man forsake his thoughts and let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Isn't that the exact same theme we just saw in Psalm 25? God forgives sins creates covenants with people who are sinners he prizes the humble and the lowly and you look around your day every day of this week and notice that the rest of the world is doing the exact opposite prizing the strong giving praise to the beautiful thinking and bowing down to the the smart and the mighty of our society my ways are not like you when someone sins and screws up their life so horribly, we think God wants nothing to do with them. He only helps those people who are going to get up off, those, off the ground, pull themselves up, and help themselves. That's, that's the kind of people that God cares for. But the Bible radically comes in and says, no, no, seek the Lord when he's found. Call upon him when he is near. If you're wicked and you've forsaken God's ways, he's calling. He's saying, come, I want you. Wicked people? Yup. Let the unrighteous man forsake his thoughts. God is interested in unrighteous, wicked people to come to him. How many times do people think, in a nutshell, church is a place for all the people that got their act together? The Lord is weekly calling from this pulpit for those that need compassion, who need to return to the Lord week after week, who have been wicked and unrighteous and forsaken the ways of God, and we can know with confidence that He will abundantly pardon. And I think as Isaiah is writing this, he knows that some people are being like, I'm not so sure. I don't think that God knows all of my mess. If he really knew all of that, I don't know if he would forgive me. It's just a free gift of grace? You mean I don't have to pay back half of it or something? And this is precisely when he says, for God's ways are not like the way you think. His thoughts, the way he works in the world, it's really different. When we sin, you condemn yourself instead of seeing Jesus Christ condemned in your place. When you sin, you run from church and think I'm too unworthy to attend church this week instead of running to the very fount of grace that's being poured out for you day after day. When we take the Lord's Supper, many of you are thinking, well, I sinned again last night, so maybe I shouldn't eat the bread and the cup and forsake the very means of grace to remind you that God is inviting you, unrighteous, wicked person, come now. Receive grace, eat it, and taste it as good for you. Seek the Lord where he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. If you are wicked and you have forsaken the Lord God, then forsake that and receive with full assurance that God will abundantly pardon. This is what God's like. So, do you see how this foundation of knowing God and knowing what he's like will help you day after day make decisions about what to do with your job with your family with your finances with your relationships should I get married to so-and-so should I get what should I do here if you know what God is like the truth of his word and how he works things out what if you could move forward this week with complete assurance that even if you did make a decision that was not only sinful but it screwed things up for you It messed up what seemed to be a good thing in your life. You'll never get out of God's plan for you. There is grace, and he abundantly pardons. And we're urging each and every one of you to receive it afresh today. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we come now in the name of your Son, Jesus, the one who was sent into the world very strangely born in most humble of circumstances not in a palace but laid in a manger not with a mom and a dad but with a mom and a guy who wasn't even her husband yet father in heaven we are so thankful that when we look and gaze This Christmas season, into the mystery of your love for us in Christ, we can be confident that you abundantly pardon, that you invite the wicked and the unrighteous, and that you can teach us your ways. So we pray that your Holy Spirit will lead each and every one of us to saturate ourselves in your word so that the rhythm of your wisdom would become second nature to us, that we wouldn't need to think about the Bible as some sort of of back-of-the-answer answer book, but as the guide to how the entire cosmos works and what your plan is and how we then fit within it. I pray you'd give us patience to wait, to wait upon your timing to wait upon our own sanctification knowing that we need greater wisdom to learn how you work in this world. We pray for you to give us patience to wait instead of choosing sin that clearly is a demonstration of our inability to wait for your good timing and just want it now. Oh Holy Spirit come into each of our lives help us see the folly of our ways in the goodness of God, in Jesus' name, amen.